Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. As those of you who have been following along with the show will know, I've, I've been paying special attention over the last few weeks um, to, to pro-life activists who really have, have been a fundamental part of the American pro-life movement over the past 30 to 40 years. And as I was putting together my guest list for the next uh, couple of months, and, and just to let you guys know, we have, we have some incredible authors that are coming on uh, with some new best-selling books. Uh, we have some religious figures coming on. We have a real broad spectrum of guests that are going to be coming on this show throughout the fall. Uh, but one of the people that I immediately knew I had to talk to was a pro-life activist uh, from the Detroit area in Michigan uh, named Lynn Mills. And I, I met Lynn Mills uh, for the first time a few years ago, probably I think five years ago, at a uh, at a remembrance ceremony uh, for unborn children. There's a graveyard in uh, on the outskirts of Detroit where where several babies uh, are buried, aborted babies that were uh, belatedly rescued from a dumpster behind an abortion clinic and laid to rest uh, in a cemetery. And this happens every year now, but there were there were several ceremonies across the country that commemorated the millions of babies that have been lost uh, to abortion since Roe v. Wade. And so that's where I first met uh, Lynn Mills. And I met her again when I was speaking at the Michigan Right to Life Dinner on abortion strategy and, and abortion victim photography. And I had a wonderful dinner with her. We went out and we chatted about, about pro-life war stories, of which I only had a couple. And, of course, she had decades worth. And there's nothing that she hasn't done. She's sidewalk canceled outside abortion clinics. She has gotten abortionists driven out of their buildings. She has been a relentless undercover investigator exposing what the abortion industry in Michigan is up to. And one thing uh, that most people don't know about her is that she is the woman who uncovered the evidence that shut down Dr. Jack Kevorkian, or uh, Dr. Death, as some of you might recall. Dr. Death was uh, was known as a euthanasia pioneer, and he was basically uh, gassing people to death, killing people um, at their request initially, but eventually uh, it was discovered that he had murdered at least one person and probably more. And it was Lynn Mills who actually found the evidence that he had killed somebody against their will. And this was the evidence that later put Dr. Death, Dr. Jack of Orkian behind bars. And I think she's one of the only pro-life activists who actually uh, ended up having somebody play her in an HBO film called You Don't Know Jack about the uh, life and bloody times of Dr. Jack of Orkian. And so again, she's done a broad spectrum of activism. She has participated in the rescues. Uh, she took down Dr. Death. Uh, she she faced off with Bill Clinton, and I won't tell you what she did, but she did something pretty cool to make sure that nobody could ever claim Bill Clinton didn't know what abortion was all about. She spoke to him in person. And so well, without any further introduction from me, here's my conversation with my good friend and a veteran pro-life activist that I admire very much, uh, Lynn Mills from Detroit, Michigan. One of the things I've been asking some pro-life activists that I'd like to start off by asking you was, do you remember the first time you heard about abortion and realized what it was? That's a loaded question. Um, my, It was my mother. Okay. And do you want to go there? If you're willing to, sure. Well, I grew up 
being raised a pro-life activist, not because my mother was pro-life. My mother wanted to abort me. She grew up saying, I should have aborted you. I should have flushed you down the toilet when I had the chance. And so your question, Jonathan, you know, I... I just grew up hearing the word abortion. There was never a time I wasn't pro-life. As a child, I always thought, how could somebody do that? You know, I just grew up thinking, wow, you know, I'm, I, I just grew up thinking, I'm, I'm glad you didn't do that. And, right. you know, as, as I, I grew and I got older and I got the courage to ask her, things, I said, why didn't you? And she said she was scared of dying. And getting older and older and understanding that in 1972, I I became a legal adult. I was able to vote. And in Michigan, we had the, we have some of the strictest pre-row abortion laws on our books, I could vote for the first time in my life. And we had on the ballot the issue of abortion. And they were trying to make us a Colorado, a Hawaii, a New York. And I could go and vote for president, which I did. But more importantly, I went to vote no on Proposal B. Proposal B was intended to turn us into, God forbid, a state of New York. And that was my first form of activism. And then I did nothing. I apologize. I did nothing. I was a young woman. I had a life to live. I didn't know where to begin with activism until in my middle 20s, somebody said, I heard somebody say on the local news, your local right to life office. And I went, what? There's, there's a right to life locally here right. in Michigan? And then out of my way, I became an activist. So. So you headed down to the right to life office and what did they put you to work doing back in, in those days? Right to life offices oh. are very different now than they used to be. Right. It was the Right to Life Lifespan Office, and they put me to work doing the very boring voter survey. And I know it needs to be done, but I'm not that type of person. So I worked on it for about nine months, and I made a lot of friends. And after nine months, the amount of time it takes to birth or grow a baby, I said, hey, people, and I had opened the yellow pages, and I saw for the first time in my life all of the abortion mills in the yellow pages, and I was outraged. I had never, ever in my life opened the yellow pages to the abortion mills before. And I said, oh, didn't know we had one in Livonia, didn't know we had one in Redford. I know I'm naming local cities in the greater Detroit area. And we had about 50 people going to Redford. That's a city just outside of Detroit proper. 
and we picketed them. And then um, I focused on Livonia, and we I I started investigating too, and dealing with the state of Michigan and licensing. And oh my gosh, we had a criminal abortionist owning the Livonia abortion mill on Six Mile Road. He had been in prison in the 60s for doing criminal abortions. Who'd have thought? And state of Michigan, let him get away with it. His name is Eugene Ralph Mara, and he had been doing criminal abortions at the Snowden Clinic in Detroit. Um, can't think of the abortionist name he worked under at the time, but there was a brilliant Detroit News reporter. Her name's Dolly Katz. Thank you, Dolly Katz. Back when they did real journalism, and she had gone undercover in the early 70s investigating the abortion mills, and she'd even let them do a pelvic on her. And when I had finally caught up with her in the 80s, I mean, censor the language she used about him. The pelvic was rough. It wasn't nice. And they were ready to do an abortion on her, and she wasn't pregnant. This is the Snowden Clinic at around 7 Mile and Myers. Now, I know it doesn't mean anything to you. It maybe doesn't mean anything to your podcast. But I've got the details right there. And, in fact, the abortionist who owned this clinic just died within the last two years and received a Catholic burial, and I am scandalized all day long. And I can only hope that he had a true conversion and that somewhere along the way the priest stopped and asked him about the condition of his soul and just didn't give lip service to this abortionist. But when uh, you say you were investigating, and this is really interesting because the, the those the listeners who have kept up with this podcast will know I, I've done an interview with Troy Newman, and he's talked about what that's been like to, to investigate clinics. And Troy said that the entire operating thesis of his organization is that abortionists kill babies. They're not real doctors. All of them are breaking the law. You just have to find out how. And so he kind of went through. Uh, abortion free and how he goes behind the scenes and gets information to get abortionists behind bars. How did you, as you know, a young mother, uh, go from somebody who was filling out forms and 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 doing uh, and doing voter work for a right to life organization to exposing abortionists and doing investigations? How did you how did you become an investigator basically, and what did that look like? Well, I think a lot of it happened with Joe Scheidler and just yacking my mouth on an airplane home from a March for Life, and somebody overheard me talking, and they said, you sound like somebody who needs to meet Joe Scheidler, and they showed me a picture of Joe Scheidler in his black hat and coat, and I went, whoa, he looks really uh, terrifying to me, <laughs> and they went, no, 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 and so my husband and I took a trip with our little Jennifer to Chicago, and I couldn't have been more blown away in a good way. And then I took a couple friends to Chicago and we did the 
street counseling, Chicago style, and Joe said, Lynn, you've got to get the dirt on these guys. The only way to get to the babies is through the mothers, and you've got to let them know how dangerous abortion is for them. Because right now, the moms, they don't care about the babies. That's why they're there. You've got to get them to care about themselves first. And so when I would go down to the Wayne County Records Department in the basement of the Wayne County building and started looking up all of these abortionists and the harm they did to these women, I was hooked I was hooked on investigating, and um, you can go lateral, you can go deeper. It's just, then you learn different areas in which to go. It, it, It really is fascinating, and FOIA is just something I started doing maybe seven years ago. Freedom, and, that's freedom of access to information, right? Right, yeah. right, and... Um, so what sort of when you, when you, what was the when you started being an investigator what was the first big find that really uh, like hooked you on on doing this investigative work and 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 realizing that this was a very fruitful way of shutting down abortionists? Um, probably the deaths of these women and nobody caring, and um, if they didn't die, them winding up in in homes. As and I don't want to say I want to be very careful. Um, they would just wind up in homes with nobody caring for them. Like after botched and abortions, then, you mean? Beg your pardon. Like after botched abortions, you mean? Right. And then I couldn't get when I would call the attorneys. They were protected by patient-client privilege, and the attorneys wouldn't speak to me about how I could get a hold of them, how I could get a hold of the families, and then keep in mind, knowing how busy, you know, your fam- your growing family is, I had to balance my family. Right. And for much of my beginning career as a pro-lifer, I worked, too. I had a job outside of my pro-life job, so um, time and, and energy was limited. So um, there was... Like I said, so much I could do, and if I could go back, and I wish I had the knowledge back then that I have now, I would do things differently. And Lara, Licensing and Regulatory Affairs with the state of Michigan has morphed greatly, but you couldn't get them to do anything. For them to let an ex-felon, a a non-doctor, a felon non-doctor owned two abortion mills. Unbelievable. So one of the things that, that we've been talking about a bit on this podcast, and you'll have had many of these conversations behind closed doors, I certainly have with many pro-life activists and many pro-life leaders, is that it's very difficult sometimes to deal with the horror of abortion on a day-to-day basis. And so not just... Uh, with you know pictures of aborted babies and and sort of the recognition even when you're when you're talking to somebody on the sidewalk that if this conversation doesn't go well you know a baby could die the stakes are so incredibly high 
But for the work that you were doing, and Troy has described this as well, uh, it's it the, the side that you're dealing with is almost uglier than most activists because we're not just talking uh, about dead babies. We're also talking about the horrifying things that abortionists are doing to women, right? As you just mentioned, there's women were dying of botched abortions in legal abortion clinics, which is the one thing that the abortion lobby said wouldn't happen anymore. We're talking about women who were treated roughly, who were even sexually assaulted by abortionists. And so how did you manage to separate that that darkness that you were dealing with from the fact that you had a, a, a beautiful growing family to deal with as well? How did because you don't have two brains, right? These 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 two lies bleed into each other. So how did you manage that? You just learn to shut it off. Uh, I don't know. There there is a switch. You you don't look at the pictures even today. I don't like to use victim imagery, but it, it came to a certain point in Livonia at Planned Parenthood where they got so persnickety about our clean, sanitized signs, Jonathan. You go back up and the signs you haven't used for 12 years, you say, okay, you don't like my clean, sanitized signs? How do you like these? Right. And you pull them out. So you didn't like the the worded signs. Here you go. Um, some sometimes you have to put them away. I, and and then can am I allowed to speak freely? Yes. Can I tell you what Planned Parenthood did? Please do. <sighs> they did a nine one one call, and they said um, they have a dead fetus on a sign out here, and it's gross, and they're showing body fluids. I kid you not. It was just... So we took that 911 call that we FOIA'd, and we made a mockery out of Planned Parenthood, and we turned it on them. How can Planned Parenthood call and do a 911 call about a so-called dead fetus. They didn't even call it an aborted fetus. They called it a dead fetus on a picket sign and be offended by it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, the thing that you have to ask in that case and and I and I've had abortion supporters tell me that those signs that we use at the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform as well are offensive. And I say, if, if photographic evidence of this baby's demise is offensive, how much more offensive is the fact that this is happening inside clinics every single day? They don't realize that by their descriptions of the signs, they actually say something profoundly disturbing about what it is that they support, or in the case of the story you just mentioned, what it is that they actually do. Right. And and then on top of it they make a fake nine one one call over the sign. So I I am constantly um I don't even know what the word is, Jonathan. Um surprised by them. I shouldn't be. I've been in this movement since nineteen eighty one. And yet they still surprise me. I don't know. I'm not naive, but they just blow me away. I, I just, uh, they're gall. 
One of the things that's been interesting about your uh, career, if I can call it that, in the pro-life movement is that you've you've done a little bit of everything. As you said, from voting to working in a right-to-life office to investigative work, and, and we'll get to some more uh, of your work in a moment here. But one of the things I wanted to ask is every pro-lifer has these these stories, these beautiful stories, whether it's shutting down an abortion clinic, whether it's changing a woman's mind on the sidewalk and realizing that like a baby is alive because you know you showed up and that work was blessed. Um, what was one of the first stories you had that really kept you going? Like, what was that moment when you were like, this, this, is, this is why I do what I do? I remember the first time I got to hold a baby who was scheduled to be aborted uh, at the abortion clinic like 20 minutes from our office because his mother walked past uh, our signs. And it was a moment I'll never forget. And I find that every pro-life activist has a bunch of these stories, these stories that make the rest of it all worth it. What was the first one or two of those for you? I can't say that I've had stories like that. Um, I'm just driven, Jonathan. There have been success stories all along. But I wouldn't give any one story a moment like that. I would just say I'm obedient, and whether I'm successful or not, I continue. There are sometimes I'm down, and sometimes I'm way up, um, and that God has continued to bless me all along, and um, I any given day, any given moment, you know, out at the Livonia Planned Parenthood, I'm full of stories. And people say, write a book. And I was like, I wish I had time to. But, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, one of the, I don't know if I've told you about the trunk abortionist no. and chasing him out of three abortion clinics or three rental places in six No, tell, tell us months. that story. So in 2014, we started picketing the Archdiocese, well, Providence Hospital, because we found out that we had known they had been there, but I had just finally had it with the Catholic Hospital not doing anything. And we started picketing the hospital. We went over to this abortionist office. He'd been there 22 years. Now, when an abortionist is embedded in a building for 22 years, you don't think anything's going to happen. About six weeks later, we went back there and picketed again. And they came out and said, he's he lost his lease. He's not here. And it's like, wow, that's unheard of. Well, something had happened. They had put in a fancy plastic surgery place and when we had picketed there the plastic surgery place thought we were picketing them and they were doing commercials on tv and they weren't going to have anything of having their fancy clients come in and see us picketing a second and third trimester abortionist 
I say third trimester because he was getting clients from Canada under the table. Right. So I find out he's down the street. He's in an urgent care during the day because the urgent care opens at night. And it's like, what the heck? I don't have time to go to everybody in the building. So we just mail from three different locations. And this is like on the sly information, just state information. And people, listen to me. You too can do this. Legal documents from the state of Michigan because he had been caught doing abortions in people's homes earlier in the 1990s and in the early 2000s, took those documents, mailed them to the 33 other people who had been paying rent in the same medical building. That's all I did. And I went on vacation. Came home, me and four other people, we picketed that place. All of a sudden, here comes this man walking at us. And I look at me and the three other picketers, and it's like, oh, boy, they're going to ask us to not picket. And I go, Jonathan, I've never stopped picket in my life. Right. Well, this was the building manager. And he goes, please stop picketing. I take a deep breath. He goes, because we've already put in an injunction against the sub-leaser. He is in this building illegally, and we've put in, what's the word for it, uh, to terminate both of their leases. And I went, what? So he was evicted second time. This is just a couple months. Then I find out he's with my ex-OBGYN over Thanksgiving. We go there. I recognize all of his, he puts baby pictures all, baby pictures. This is the day before Thanksgiving. I call my ex-OBGYN and I said, so you're going to be doing second trimester abortions now. And they went, what? I says, yeah, Michael Arthur Roth does second trimester abortions. I hang up with them. The day after Thanksgiving, I send a family member up there to take pictures of where I had taken pictures of the day before. Everything's gone. He's been evicted for the third time. He doesn't land another place to rent until two months later in January. I send one of my other pro-life up there, and he goes in there and he begs to have an abortion for his family member. Nope, nope, not going to do it. Well, guess what happens in September of 2015, he has an accident and is caught with 15 aborted babies in his trunk because he couldn't do abortions in the new place he leased. God has a sense of humor. He loses his medical license. He gets charged in two counties and um, is convicted. Now, did he go to jail? No. So I don't know where the justice is, and if he wants to, right now, he can go to New York and do all the abortions he wants to, but he cannot be in Michigan anymore committing abortions. So, I mean, to me, that's 
that's a success story. That if you think you can't be effective by just doing a simple legal mailing of legal documents to a business, but and if you think because somebody's been in an established location for 22 years, and by the way, we did a rescue at that place in the early 90s, and the officer who guarded this building for that first picket we did in 2014, he told me, he goes, I was a rookie officer. Lynn, you almost made me quit that day. I thought, what am I getting into? And we had we had a real good laugh over that. And um, very nice officer. Yeah. So it's just go by your instincts, go with your prayers, and do what God is calling you to do. And you are going to have the ups and the downs, the right. You know, the ebbs and the flows. It's, you know. Well, that's actually a, that's a really good segue because the next thing I, I'd wanted to ask you about moving sort of chronologically is then you got involved in Operation Rescue. And we've had a few people on this podcast talking a bit about Operation Rescue. For, for new listeners just turning, tuning in, Operation Rescue was the biggest civil disobedience movement in, in American history. There was more than 70,000 arrests in front of abortion clinics by people who were attempting uh, to block the doors. When did you get involved? What was your entry in, into that movement, and what did your involvement look like in Operation Rescue? Well, I was the only female they invited to join them um, <laughs> who is they? at their leadership meeting. So, when you, um, when you say still... they, is it Jeff White, Keith Tushy, who, which, which ones? Uh, Randall Terry. In, okay. in the early, early 80s, I mean early 88, um, I had a newborn baby. So this was sometime in 1988, and I just didn't feel I could go without her, my little Lauren Ashley, and I, um, I turned them down, and I do regret turning them down. And um, <clears throat> during the Summer of Mercy, Jeff White, God bless him, did make sure I was included. I was the all, you know, there's a, there's a hierarchy with, with female leadership. And he did make sure I had a role in one of the rescues that we did do at Tiller's dump. Um, so thank you, Jeff White, for that. And a shout out to him that, um, I can't remember what it was, but he did make sure I had female leadership in one of the rescues there. And so, um, so Summer of Mercy, I was there twice. It was great, let me tell you. It was awesome to be in Wichita for that. Describe that. And, describe the Summer of Mercy for a minute, because a lot of the, the pro-lifers who are listening, who are younger, um, can't really fathom how crazy and how huge the Summer of Mercy was, 20,000 pro-lifers descending on this city because the late-term abortion clinic was there. So just paint us a picture, if you would, of, of the Summer of Mercy. I just got goosebumps again. It was, we were just flying in there. I don't even know how. We must have flew into Kansas City, drove out there. I can't even remember what hotel we stayed in. But there were people outside of Tiller's Mill all hours of the day and night. George, George and, Tiller, late-term abortionist. Right, right. And it was just, you know, just it was nonstop. It was, you know, having the big rally in whatever field. Um, that sta- it was a stadium, yeah. 
stadium, yes. Um, the parade with all of the the tractors and the, the trucks and so many friends you meet there and, and eating the Kansas City beef or the just the 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 corn you fed beef. It was it was just wonderful. It was um we stopped abortion. I don't think he operated at all, except for that day that we did, whatever days we did the rescues. And I think we stopped him. I don't remember. I, I do remember my husband had a request. Don't get arrested. Fed- you know what? I take that back. Maybe they did do abortions because my husband said, don't get arrested federally. Get arrested locally. Right. So they must have been doing abortions. Now that I think about that, and um, <clears throat> uh, it was just, um, you're going to have to ask somebody else for more details. I just <laughs> remember it being glorious, spiritual, and joyful. It, we were with like-minded people, and the city was, I don't want to say under attack it was under attack in a good way right if that makes sense it does yes uh when so when you look back at your operation rescue days which would have been probably from what the 80s until 1994 i think was the spring of life in new york um what what, what memories jump out at you from your operation rescue days well we had 12 no arrest rescues here in detroit and because I say the goal isn't to get arrested, the goal is to save babies. The goal is to be a witness for the moms and the children. It's If getting arrested is your goal, you've got the wrong goal there. Um, and our, we, we had everything down pat. We had... Um, Deacon Joe Iskra, we had a, and he wasn't a deacon then, but he was the lead sidewalk counselor, and we had sidewalk counselors all over the place. We had a mobile unit back before there was mobile units, which was basically a a a camper with a bathroom and pregnancy tests there, um, trained side um, CPCs, and we would have 500 people sitting down so that the sidewalk counselors could do their their jobs. I had a beneficiary who would have commercials on the local Catholic radio station. And, well, wait, I'm getting a little confused. He turned Catholic, so it was the local Protestant Catholic, Protestant station back in the day. So um, we had commercials advertising our rescues so we could get that amount of people there. We had pre-rescue rallies. We had training. We had intense training. And um, we wanted people safe. We had the communists come out and attempt and sometimes be successful at beating the bejeebies out of us. So then we had to come back and retrain people at you don't put your fist up to cover your face. You have to 
turn and let them beat on your back. If they're going to beat a woman, you've got to get in between the woman and the communist beating you up. Um, you know, I would try to train people that everybody wear a neutral tan color, everybody wear a neutral gray color, so it's harder to identify you with the police. Um, we had to have the attorney set up without the attorneys knowing what we're doing because they are officers of the court, and if they knew a rescue was going to happen, they have to, you know, inform the law. You know, all those ducks in a row. You know, nobody wear sweatpants, and those that was the rage back in the day because when the officers grab you by your sweatpants, well, that wasn't good either. You know, wear, wear jeans so that you can keep your modesty. All kinds of minuscule little things and, mm. you know, just have everything set to go. And when we didn't get arrested, it was glorious. It was just glorious. And there, there were many, many police departments and I did not take advantage of the same police departments that didn't want to arrest us. I would move on. I don't think it would be fair to take advantage of police departments um, who are pro-life and just keep going back to them. So um, we uh, would go around and, I mean, even in Detroit, Somebody sent me a video, and I looked at this place in Detroit, and I thought, I didn't remember the Detroit police not arresting us. I think the abortionists just gave up that day. And many of these times, it was on Good Friday. And back in 1987, when we all had what we called the Pope's Rescue, we will stand up. So many of the abortion mills, and we had so many abortion mills back then, voluntarily closed down on their own. You would call them up and say, I need to make an appointment, you know. And they said, oh, no, 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 you know, the Pope's coming. And I said, oh, are you going to go see him? No. You know, we're just, the Pope's coming. We're, we're closing. Oh, okay, thank you. So what kind, what, what, what kind of violence did you guys actually put up with? Because that's one part of the rescues that doesn't get mentioned often, right? The the media and the historians, because I've, I've read a lot of the books written about this period, even by secular journalists, and a lot of them will refer to the handful of the handful of fringe crazies who post rescue um, perpetrated violence. But very few people ever mention the violence that was perpetrated against pro-lifers, like you just mentioned. Well, one of the <clears throat> ones was, I call it the anniversary rescue, and it was around the anniversary of Roe versus Wade in um, 1989, and it was um, on 8 Mile Road, 8 Mile like you would uh, in Detroit, like Eminem sings about, and... They wanted to throw a whitewash on us. They bit my friend Ann Rock on her finger. They were beating us on our head. We do have videos somewhere. I don't know where it's at. And they were pounding on our heads. I mean, it's it was all documented. I don't... They did get charged, and I don't know whatever happened to it. I know they got arrested. There were several of them that got arrested... Um, the odd thing about all of that is the police had to get in and separate them 
before they could arrest us. And again, learning curve, I would have gone back and followed their arrest. But I was so busy just dealing with our arrest. So, um, again, I apologize for not knowing what became of their circumstance. <laughs> no, so this kind of um, segues quite nicely into something else I wanted to ask you, because uh, basically the rescue movement faltered and more or less came to an end after Bill Clinton passed the Freedom of Access to Abortion Clinic entrances, uh, which would basically lock up lock up the rescuers uh, for good. And as I recall... Um, you actually uh, met Bill Clinton. You were protesting uh, his potential election back in 1992, but you met him and he came over to talk to you. Uh, tell us that story. I was invited to go to one of the town hall meetings at Channel 7. I forgot the name of the man in charge. He's still around with WXYZ Channel 7 local in Detroit. And I got to take my good friend Terry Buckshaw with me. Had on my fancy skirt, fancy shoes, but I wore my bush quail sweatshirt. I just, okay. I still have that shirt. And he, I, I was the only one that got to have a follow-up question. And Terry and I were the only bush quail supporters in that room. And. Everybody else just loved Bill Clinton, and he made a beeline for me. And they're all like, why isn't he coming to us? You know, what is he doing with her? Well, who's the one he had to convince? Right. Me. And so he's shaking my hand and has his other hand on my elbow, and I had a picture of baby David, a postcard in my hand, and I slipped that in his coat pocket. An abor- a so, baby, baby David, for the listeners, was a photograph of an aborted baby. Right. And so if he said he didn't know what abortion was beforehand, he knew when he put his hand in his pocket that day and pulled it out exactly what abortion was. And if anybody doesn't believe in 1992, he didn't know what abortion was. I have some land in Arkansas. I can sell you. <laughs> so... Yeah, so yes. I, I've, when you, the first time you told me that story, I was really trying to imagine uh, the look on Bill Clinton's face when he put his hand into his suit pocket and pulled out that photograph and realized that uh, despite the fact that he'd attempted to persuade you, you definitely, uh, you definitely got the best of him in that particular exchange. That's right. That, that's a fond memory. It was an exciting day. And, uh, you know, the probe, I still remember the look on all of their faces. They were just shocked that he came to me and not them. So so the the big story that I want to talk with you about, and this issue becomes more and more and more relevant, uh, the issue of euthanasia and assisted suicide, is your role in exposing uh, Dr. Death or Jack Kevorkian. Uh, and this is this is the pro-life uh, work that you did that ended up putting you in an HBO movie uh, about Dr. Death. So start off just by uh, telling our listeners who Dr. Jack Kevorkian was. I, I, I'm i 31, but I still remember reading about him in the newspaper. Um, very, very early on in Time Magazine and things like that. But a lot of people won't know who he is. So, so tell us who Jack Kevorkian was and then how he attracted your notice and how you began uh, to work on trying to expose what he was all about. Okay. 
Can I ask, have you seen the movie? No, I haven't. I would, I would highly encourage you um, to watch You Don't Know Jack. Some people blackballed it even before it came out. He's a, he's a wacko. And I don't want to ruin the ending, but it's a great ending. And there are some inaccuracies in the movie in regards to me. They have me pounding on the car. What do you think would happen to a pro-lifer who pounded on Jack Vorkian's car? Oh, yeah, we all know. Yeah, I'd be thrown in jail. And they have me yelling at him, you're worse than an abortionist. Well, no, he's not worse than an abortionist. He's bad, but he's not worse than an abortionist. Yeah, it's, that a, being, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty unrealistic like to say, yeah, it's pretty unrealistic to say that Lynn Mills would accuse anybody of being worse than an abortionist. Right, right. So, I, he started whacking people here and it's like, oh my gosh. And well, we had start, start our off by, County, Start off by explaining who he was. He's Dr. Death. He was putting people to death in his Volkswagen bus. I think that's what it was. And he had a drip, drip, drip machine. And I want to wish I could come. I want to say Wanda Miller. I can't. I used to know all of their names. And this was back. He maybe started in 1990. And there was just the lone prosecutor. Richard Thompson, God bless him. He was the only one standing up to Kevorkian and the coroner, uh, Dragovich. Every one of these deaths was labeled a homicide. And he was getting charged. The first couple deaths, homicides, I'm sorry. And then all of a sudden, here comes this attorney, Jeffrey Feiger, started defending him, and Kevorkian started getting off of everything, and he started making national news, and then Clinton wins, and, you know, Dick Thompson is trying to dodge these arrows from Feiger, can't say his name without cringing, and we go to protest Clinton at the inaugural. We pray in front of the White House with Pat Mahoney. Shout out to Pat. And Dawn Stover and the folks from Portland, Oregon, grab me and say, Lynn, why aren't you doing something about Kevorkian? And I look at her because I'm busy with abortion. They said, well, we're coming to Detroit. Get ready. Like one more thing, I'm not ready for this. Well, they came, we had a meeting, and we all divvied up our assignments. And the day they came, there was this other woman who lived next door to Neil Nickel. Neil Nickel was Jack Kevorkian's best friend and drug supplier. And he had a very large role in the movie. He was played by the man who was Roseanne's husband in the TV show. I don't know if you remember his name. Um, anyway, she 
said creepy things were going on in that house. Many people had died in that house, too. Right. And I was there, and I saw Neil Nickel take out the garbage, put it on the curb. And I started getting antsy, like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Part of the house is gone out to the curb. He had two garbage cans and two garbage bags. And I'm talking to Dawn. This is my job to go there and talk to Dawn, the next door neighbor, because some of the guys were like big um, lumberjack type people. Um, and I just said, you can't go talk to her. We need another small woman to talk to her. And so when I was done talking to her about what was going on in that house, I drove up with my minivan, opened the side door, and threw the two bags in. And I can't imagine what could have been in the garbage cans that I didn't get. But in those bags, one of them was what Jack Vorking calls an Obadiah Treat Report, his words. And it said that Hugh Gale asked to have the gas taken off his his face the the mask so this was and, some, this was basically somebody that dr death was killing on request but had changed his mind partway through and asked to have the gas taken off correct right yes and then he said Hugh Gale said I'm ready to have it put back on let's do it again and then he changed his mind a second time and he got agitated and said take it off take it off and Jack clearly states there it was left in place and he continued to be agitated and pardon me if I'm getting some of the words wrong it's been years since I've read this document um, it was left in place until the agitation stopped and you know the breathing slowed down and he died and I just went like what and then also there was that heartbeat strip. The um, You might want to help me with the name of the... When you have the strip on your chest and you can see the heart beating, and then yeah, it an slows EK, down. An, an EKG. Right, and then it flatlines. And it's like, you were holding somebody's death in your hands. Right. And back then, this is in 94, it's like, you didn't have the Internet. You had, I don't know what you had... In Canada back then, we had 411 for information. And you could call, let's say, Pontiac, Michigan, for information. You could call Flint for information. You could call Toledo. And it's like, I'd say, I need Richard Thompson, please. And they say, well, we have 17 of them. Which one do you want? It's like, oh, my gosh. It's like 11 o'clock at night. So we waited till the morning, and I called Richard Thompson, the prosecutor, and he goes, what? And I happened to be one of the few people, not everybody back then had a fax machine, faxed it to him. He got on the phone, and he said, this is a quote, he goes, like any good cop, Lynn, meaning getting the garbage. And he says, how soon can you bring this to me? because he wanted the actual stuff. Mm -hmm. He said, I didn't need to bring the banana peel. I didn't need to bring the coffee grinds. <laughs> I took him everything. I didn't want any of it. 
And then we waited for the door to be knocked down. And Kevorkian has said it was one of the worst days of his life. Well, too bad. I think around that same time, Governor Engler was signing a proclamation making it making something that Kevorkian was doing criminal. I can't I can't remember. I'm sorry. This was in 94. So it was a long time ago. Making something he was doing criminal and they were very upset and it just all heck broke loose. And to be there when they knocked down his door was amazing. Just just amazing. Did you did you I actually see them knock down his door? Yes. Yes. We were in front. Yep. <laughs> yep, it was sweet. And so when did Yeah, the how how, the how, how did that story end up unfolding? How did it end up unfolding? Yeah, so they you were there, you watched them kick the door down. Um we saw the um they were the prosecutor or whoever they sent they had ball caps on that said Top Gun coming by. And so it was like, that was our clue. Remember the ball caps with Top Gun on it. Right. So, uh, literally see them, his, he was on the second story. So literally see the door get knocked down? No. But we were there. So he was on the second story. How, how, did, the, and then, how did the Jack of Orkian story end? He died um, after he got out of jail. He, um, you know, he lived eight years. He, um, he fired. It was always rocky with him and Jeffrey, and he, he didn't like being controlled by Jeffrey. And he eventually fired him. And Kevorkian thought the people would rise up, such as maybe in Lemez. And they would storm the barricades and save him. And it didn't happen. When Kevorkian went over the edge and blatantly killed somebody, he didn't let the person pull the string himself. He injected the man himself and put it up on 60 Minutes. He went to jail. He you know, he went to prison and then he got out on a hardship case. But Judge Jessica Cooper threw him in jail and he should have been in there to the day he died. And when he died in the hospital, this is a, I find this really fascinating. The nurses, I've been told, were massaging his head. They were playing Bach. He didn't ask for the Jack Kevorkian death machine. He didn't ask for drip, drip, drip. Let me pull the lever. Let me have my own brand of medicine. He didn't ask for any of that, Jonathan. He wanted Bach. He wanted to live as long as he could. And his attorney wasn't there, and his attorney didn't go to his funeral. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yep, that's how bad it was. So how did, uh, did he know that you were the one who found the evidence to put him in jail? Oh, yeah, he hated me. 
<laughs> yep. Yep. And then when he was starving himself in prison, which the jailer said, oh, this is such a crock because um, they were suing me because I called him a murderer, another badge of honor. Uh, he would come out in his, we, they would wheelchair him out and we, we had to depose him. And he just like put his head down and went, blah, 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 and wouldn't be deposed. So the the lawsuit was thrown out. But as soon as he got back into his jail cell, he hopped out of the wheelchair, asked for his juice and his vitamins, and started jogging in place or something like that. We got this right from the jailer, the the Oakland County Sheriff at the time. Uh, I think his. Last name was Nickel, not spelled the same way as his drug supplier, but sim- similar, another Nickel. And it's just like so fake. And that um, his sister was yelling at me one day about how awful I was to him. I'm not the one running around killing people. I'm not the one facilitating killing healthy people. He was. And so today in this country... We have people dying at a high rate before their time because of him. We have, I believe, hospice facilitating, expediting you meeting your maker before your time because of Jack Kevorkian. No doubt about it. Yeah. So how did I don't do? Do you trust hospice? Uh, not well. Not since euthanasia was legalized here, right? Well, the difficulty is, is that once uh, assisted suicide, once death, once once lethal injections are reclassified as medicine, and once killing somebody is reclassified as a form of health care, then you can't have any trust, uh, and you do have to constantly be on your guard. So it's 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 about the redefinition of terms, right? If if a lethal injection can be medicine, then the word medicine no longer means anything. Um, and we're, we're much further ahead uh, of on the curve here in Canada uh, than you are, of course, in the United States. Well, maybe not Oregon, um, but most places you're still far behind where we are. So I know exactly uh, what you're talking about. Um, when did you find out you were going to end up in the film? When did they contact you about that? Because one of the things that surprised me is you told me you thought, besides the, the two instances that you mentioned of inaccuracy, that you thought it was it was pretty fair the way they presented your story in that film. And you even went to the premiere, didn't you? Yes, the premiere here in, in Detroit. And um, without them contacting me, a whole segment, I mean, they... They show Dick Thompson holding up the paperwork I gave them. I'm sure Jeffrey Feiger is ticked off to this day that that segment was put in there. But I think somehow the Hugh Gale death, and this is why I tell watch it, please. Because, like I said, some people, like Rita can't think of Rita's last name and other well I'll back that statement up I don't know what Rita said there are some anti-euthanasia people who said no 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 don't watch this movie at all it's you know not good they show the contraption that they put Hugh Gale in 
it's a monster contraption. They expose Jack for what he was. They show Jack and Neil Nickel fighting afterwards. I didn't even know some of these things. Okay. They show Kevorkian, I think, as a Looney Tune. I mean, do, do they show him in a... Are there moments of him being shown in a good light? Yeah, but people already adore him. I mean, pro-lifers, you need to get over yourselves and just take a look at the film. And it's not even about me. It's about the ending. <laughs> okay. got to tell you, it's about the ending. And it's about... It's just good. And it won the Emmy for Best Movie of the Year. Okay. And I, I have to give the screenwriter credit for exposing the truth about this death. And I, there were some things like I was put in a room for the coroner's inquest, and I'm questioning myself right now about how much I should say, let's just say things were very, I was, t- mm, I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> let's just say I was told sideways about some things that happened there with I don't want to get sued again I'm sorry that's fair enough um, fair enough no we can <laughs> we can talk about that off air I'll ask you yeah I'll ask you the final okay. question now is it's interesting you've described yourself as unrelenting you've been involved in the pro-life movement since the early 1980s you went from working in a right to life office to doing undercover investigative work uh, to working in the rescue movement, to putting an aborted baby pitcher in Bill Clinton's pocket, uh, to uh, finding the evidence that put Dr. Jack Kevorkian in prison. And now you still go to a Planned Parenthood three times a week. So I guess the final question would be, uh, you've said before that you just keep at it because you're obedient, but a lot of people are going to want to know, give us the short answer of what keeps you going every single day in this fight because you've been in this fight for decades. Um, I didn't believe how old you were when you told me and how long you'd been in the pro-life movement. You've <laughs> literally been working in the pro-life movement since before I was actually born. And so what keeps, what keeps you going doing this every day, still going out to an abortion clinic three times a week? I was talking about this with my husband the other day. He says, I'm just driven. I, there, there are people I was at another abortion mill the other day, and there was somebody else like me who is just kind of the same but different. And there, and as I was looking, glancing at Facebook today, waiting for you to call, I am so encouraged to see other people like me out there. All of it's like they're people. God has landed us in different spots all over. I used to have a best friend in Toledo who would do the same thing. She's retired. I wish she wouldn't have. 
Um, there are people in Flint, missionaries in Flint, do this twice a, um, every day. They're better than me. Missionaries. You know, I don't know what keeps me going. I, somebody, it's not even somebody has to do it. It has to be done. And it doesn't even matter how many babies I save or I don't save. I have no idea. I'm not one of those people. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Um, I just go. Show up. Bring love. Bring prayer. And just, you know, let God. Well, then, thank you for everything you've been doing in the pro-life movement for all these decades. And thank you for taking the time to come on our show. Well, thank you for having me, Jonathan. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with veteran pro-life activist Lynn Mills of Michigan. She's one of these people that is not associated with a specific pro-life group. Uh, she's just an activist who's taken it upon herself to stand up and face the culture of death wherever she sees opportunities. And as I think this past conversation proved, uh, those opportunities have resulted in some pretty incredible things happening. So thank you all so much for joining us again on this show. The the number of listeners on this show keeps on going up, and we're very grateful that so many of you are taking the time to familiarize yourself with the pro-life and pro-family movement, to meet so many of the people uh, that really inspire us, so many of the people who are standing up against the culture of death every single day right across North America and the Western world. If you want to check out any past shows, head over to LifeSiteNews.com. We're on all of the major uh, podcast platforms from iTunes to SoundCloud to Pippa, so you can check them out there, as well, of course, uh, as a lot of opinion, commentary, and news. So thanks once again for joining us this week. We do hope you'll join us again next week. Bye for now.